0: UPR's Project Resilience is made possible with support from the Utah State University Center for Persons with Disabilities. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, as a part of UPR's ongoing series, Project Resilience, we're going to feature a special program about how seniors and people with disabilities are using technology during the pandemic. From getting hooked up to the internet for the first time, to building community virtually, to the hurdles and expanded opportunities of remote work. Later in the program, after we hear this special, we're going to talk with Sachin Pavitran. Uh, He recently started uh, a new position as Executive Director of the U.S. Access Board. He's been working in the field of accessibility for people with disabilities for the past two decades. Right now, we bring on the uh, special's uh, reporter and host, Shoshana Buxbaum. Uh, Shoshana, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: So you're talking to us from New Jersey, I believe?
1: Yes, I am talking to you from New Jersey. (laughs) That's right. I'm, uh, you know, just a a few miles away from uh, Utah.
0: Yeah, yeah, just a few miles. That's right. Uh, (laughs) uh, I guess illustrative of the fact that we, you know, uh, I guess this is a glass half full part of the, the pandemic. We're able to uh, and uh, more emphasis on you know reaching out uh, through technology, and that's in part what your piece is about. Uh, so you're a freelance journalist uh, based in New Jersey, former intern for Utah mm-hmm. Public Radio. That's uh, great. Uh, yes. And a recent graduate from the Newmark Newmark rather Graduate School of Journalism at uh, City University of New York in New York City. Uh, before grad school, you were a producer for NJTV News, New Jersey's public television uh, station. Uh, so I want to uh, hit on that, the remote. Uh, so uh, people, I think, will be even more impressed with this piece when they learn uh, you put this together and did all your reporting for UPR remotely, right? It never set foot in Utah.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I started off as an intern, as you me- uh, mentioned. Uh, I was supposed to come out to Utah, but of course, the pandemic complicated that. So I ended up reporting remotely last summer and then continued, you know, reporting remotely on this special, which, you know, because the special is about sort of connection digitally and, you know, connecting remotely, actually in fact doing the interviews remotely was sort of how people are communicating and sort of what I wanted to get at. So in a way, you know, of course, I really want to come to Utah and it was like super weird to do this deep reporting and get to know people and not actually be there physically, but it kind of lends itself to the themes that the special is about. So in a weird way, you know, reporting it remotely kind of, you know, worked.
0: Yeah. Very apropos, very timely. Um, so anything, uh, especially to listen for, so how would how'd you put this in context, prepare listeners, uh, and then we'll hear this next.
1: Yeah. So I think what's a what, to, what To listen for is sort of that I talk to a wide variety of different people with different types of disabilities, different triumphs, different struggles. That, as reporting this, sort of disability isn't this, you know, uh, clear line. Um, People um, get disabilities later in life, um, and it's not you know, something that is like a clear defining line and, um, yeah, just to listen for those moments of universality of, you know, we're all going through an unprecedented time and disability presents sort of unique challenges in in terms of using technology, but also the core of the emotions, I think, are relatable to everyone.
0: Well, let's uh, jump into this. This is about a half an hour long. Um, It's an excellent special, um, and uh, this is put together by the host and reporter, um, Shoshana Buxbaum, uh, who will join us after we listen to this as well, and later in the program we'll be talking with, as I mentioned, Sachin Pavitran. Uh, So here, as a part of UPR's Project Resilience, is uh, Shoshana Buxbaum's uh, special
2: I'm kind of an oxymoron.
3: I am 80 years
4: old, so this is all new to me. And I go, you do what? I do FaceTime and Zoom, but I miss the hugs and kisses.
5: I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. This is Project Resilience. Over the next half hour, we'll be listening to people with disabilities and seniors across the state listening to stories of how technology has shaped their lives during the pandemic. From getting hooked up to the internet for the first time, to the hurdles and expanded opportunities of remote work, we'll be focusing on technology as a connector and its renewed importance during a time when in-person communication is more limited than ever. During the confusion and isolation of the early days of the pandemic, one man actually started to imagine a new life that he never thought was possible.
6: I was laying in my bed um, and I woke up and once I opened my eyes and I started to blink, because you know when you're blinking and there's no, no light coming through.
5: Preston Parrish lost his vision suddenly in 2005. And while his vision had been a little hazy for about a year... This was a shock.
6: It was first disconcerting where, you know, your whole world comes crashing down and you don't know what you're going to do. You're just like totally freaking out.
5: He lost his vision because of diabetes. His doctors thought they might be able to restore his vision. He had several procedures and a surgery to reattach his retinas, but it didn't work. He was also undergoing dialysis at the time and his world became very small
6: it was like i was in a bubble
5: preston went to dialysis 3 times a week he made friends with a guy who sat next to him and that friend kept trying to convince him to get services and start adjusting to his new life but preston wasn't ready
6: i shined him on and told him no i don't want to do it because i was i was feeling self pity
5: it took him 15 years but finally a few months before the pandemic Preston reached out for services. A technician from the state's Division of Services for the Blind and Visually Impaired came to his house. He helped Preston set up a screen reader for his computer. It's called JAWS.
6: JAWS will tell you exactly what you're doing, so you really don't need your eyes, all you need are your fingers.
5: The tech also told Preston about all of the programs the center offered— Classes on things like Braille, navigating with a cane, woodworking, how to do household chores.
6: And I couldn't believe all of the stuff that was going on and how fluent and efficient he was. He was he was just as blind as I was.
5: In fact, all of the texts from the division are blind.
7: It's so critical for blind individuals to be teaching other blind individuals. When you actually have blind instructors like myself and and others going out, um, then then you know it it becomes more real.
5: That's Everett Bacon. He manages the team of specialists who go into blind people's homes across the state, and it's not just about helping people set up their tech. It's about showing newly blind people what's possible. Everett's been completely blind for about ten years now.
7: I cook. I
1: grill. I uh, manage the house. Uh, Pay bills, do all the things that that anybody else does with sight, um, but uh, I just do it a little different way.
5: Once the pandemic started, the center was closed, and service techs weren't going into people's homes. They still had one-on-one virtual sessions, but they also started hosting daily Zoom meetings.
6: It was like every day. I would look forward to it. I would just go down and find a nice, comfortable place. And then wait until one o'clock before the Zoom classes started.
5: They talked about tech troubleshooting, sure, but for Preston, it was about a lot more than that. I'm
6: asking questions that I thought I could be, I would never ask anyone, like, Have you ever been out of the country? Of course, I've been out of the country. I've been to Germany, to Mexico, and I'm, my jaw's like dropping. You're blind and you went out of the country.
5: But the fact that Preston couldn't actually go do any of these new things right away, well, that didn't get him down.
6: So, you know, how people are saying that uh, they don't know what they're going to do, having to stay inside and, and for so long without doing anything. Yeah, I've already adjusted to that.
5: And now he's making his home work for him. Preston's in the process of transforming his house into a smart home. It's the little things that make a big difference.
6: I used to leave my TV on because, um, whenever whatever program was on, I would know what time it was. And now all I have to do is just you know hey Google what time is it.
5: And it was connecting with other blind people, even remotely, that made him understand what's possible.
6: If you have communications with other blind people, then you know one. One person with information could, could open the eyes of many.
5: Bacon says that for newly blind people, accepting that their lives will be different is the hardest part.
7: As much as technology is, is a wonderful thing, until you kind of come to that emotional understanding and acceptance, all that technology is just wasted.
5: That was Everett Bacon from Salt Lake City and Preston Parrish from Layton. Kelly Holt is a speaker with the Advocates as Leaders Speakers Network. Before the pandemic, she traveled across the state of Utah to educate others about the experiences of people with disabilities. Now, she's adapted to presenting remotely.
4: I was born with a traumatic brain injury. During the presentation online, it's harder for me and I don't feel as connected to the audience and I don't think my message comes across as well or as calmly and it is harder for people to understand me. I miss traveling People. I feel lonely and I do FaceTime and Zoom with, with family and friends, but I miss the hugs and kisses. If I didn't have technology, I know my life will be very boring. That was Kelly Holt from Price,
5: a speaker with the Advocates as Leaders Speakers Network. For some people with disabilities, that transition to remote work may even open up new employment opportunities that weren't accessible before. But that rapid shift to a virtual office has also created some new challenges. This seems to be a lot better with headphones, actually. So, um, okay. Yeah, and captions are populating okay. You can, like, yeah. understand me and everything.
8: Yeah. I just, like, it just takes me a minute to, like, if I don't have captions, man, it takes me a while, and I have to, like, read lips, and it's a whole thing. Yeah. Yeah.
5: No, and I feel so stupid because we literally had this whole conversation about how like Zoom doesn't have built-in captions. And then I was like, oh, here, like, let's do a Zoom. It's okay. It happens all the time. So I'm using Google Meet for my interview with Katie Lynn Adams-Anderton. It's got built-in captions. That's key for Katie Lynn because she has auditory processing disorder and also has hearing loss. Now that virtual meetings are the
8: norm, Zoom has become ubiquitous. So the biggest challenge is like Zoom does not offer captions readily available most of the time organizations have to either pay or the worst of all things you have to have someone there typing for you so like
5: and by typing for you she doesn't mean professional closed captioning she means a generous co-worker furiously trying to type what everyone's saying in real time and since we spoke zoom has rolled out live captioning for some types of accounts And there are also free professional captioning services that you can add on to Zoom. But the problem is that most people don't even think about it.
8: I think it's genuinely like just a forgetfulness of just like how wide spectrum um, people need captions because like I'm not deaf. Um, And so I think a lot of times people think because I can mildly hear, I should be able to like understand mostly and it's like no that's that's not how this
5: works in elementary school katie lynn had severe ear infections she had several surgeries and got tubes put in her ears she didn't hear at all from first through third grade
8: because i didn't hear through those very important times i don't hear correctly
5: she had surgery to graft a new eardrum to repair the damage from the infections and she did eventually regain some of her hearing But she continues to experience the symptoms of auditory processing disorder.
8: When people are talking at times, um, if I can't comprehend what they're saying, it basically sounds like the peanuts' parents, the muffledness. And I have no idea what's going on. Katie Lynn has been hesitant to disclose
5: her disability and ask for accommodations, especially at work.
8: Sometimes people will think sometimes less of me. Because I'm having to have these conversations, it becomes like this like weight of like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to say something and say, I need captions? Sachin Pavithran is executive director of the United States Access
5: Board. He says that it's common for people with disabilities to face workplace discrimination.
7: There's this uh, ideology that people with disabilities
9: are not as productive.
5: But it's the stigma around asking for tech accommodations that's actually making Katie Lynn less productive, since she's constantly looking for time-consuming workarounds. She's the vice president for compliance for a background screening company. She recently went to a virtual work conference, and there weren't any captions.
8: So I rewatched the conference two to three times per session just so that I could capture it all. If she were in person, she
5: could have asked the person next to her if she didn't catch something or she would have gone up to the presenter afterwards. That's a lot harder on Zoom when everyone disappears the instant the meeting is over. And while remote work has created new challenges for Katie Lynn, for many people with disabilities, remote work might actually expand employment opportunities. Here's Sachin Pavithran from the United States Access Board.
7: These are... uh platforms, you know, people with disabilities have been advocating for for a long time. Now, suddenly, when everyone else kind of got forced to use this platform, all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is amazing, we should do this.
5: Sachin is blind, and he's thrilled that remote meetings are now the norm. He acknowledges that his job is more accommodating than most, but going to in-person meetings was a logistical challenge for him. A combination of taking publicly funded shuttles that ran infrequently and shelling out for an Uber to his final location.
7: I've got to meetings and I'm standing in the hallway for like a you know, half an hour, 45 minutes, because there's really no another place for me to sit and wait. It's, it's hard to explore when you're a blind person, when you're by yourself.
5: Transportation remains one of the biggest barriers to employment, says Sachin. In Utah, just under 50% of people with disabilities have jobs at all. That's according to census data from 2018. And now that employers have been forced to adapt to remote work, there may be a lasting impact.
7: I think because the mindset is shifting, there's going to be more opportunities for people with disabilities to apply for jobs that they might have not considered to apply for.
5: But it's still too early to know if there'll be a permanent change. But Katie Lynn hopes that this moment might provide an opening for people with disabilities to be part of the conversation.
8: I feel like at times, these decisions are being made by people who don't understand what like the other side of the coin is like Um, and so I just think it's important to get members of this specific community who might be affected and just be able to help them in a way that's beneficial you know so everyone has equal opportunity
5: Despite there being a multitude of ways to connect virtually, technology still can't quite replicate that energy of being together physically, especially when it comes to faith. Here's Amber Orvin.
10: My disability that I'm born with is atrodactyly, atrodermal dysplasia, bilateral clefting, cleft lip, and palate. Or for short, name of it is EEC. I'm born and raised in the LDS Church. I'm the primary secretary and mid singles ward representative in my ward. I haven't done any of the my church callings because of COVID-19. Before it closed down, I was a volunteer as a cashier in the temple serving. Others, it was the highlight of my whole week. not being able to uh, together as a war, as warm members and hug and hug each other or see each other face to face. It's hard. That was my happy place, and it it still is, even if I can't go right now.
5: That was Amber Orvin from Hurricane Utah. She's also a speaker with the Advocates as Speakers Network. Missing that in-person connection has, in many ways, been the most challenging part of the pandemic. And for agencies that provide services to people with disabilities, they've been working hard to get people connected virtually, one organization even helped connect some people to the internet for the very first time.
3: I am 80 years old, so this is all new
5: to me. Before the pandemic, did you ever think that you'd be on Zoom and doing all this stuff? Never, never. I never thought this would ever happen. Nita Budo lives in Price, Utah. She attends virtual programs run by Active Reentry, an organization that provides services for people with disabilities living independently in the eastern part of the state. It's mostly rural areas. Chris Haycock is Active Reentry's Community Integration and Youth Coordinator.
7: I never once thought that we would be using Zoom uh, to provide services at all.
5: But within two weeks after some counties issued stay-at-home orders in mid-March, Chris had a slate of virtual programs up and running. Support groups for kids and adults, cooking classes, virtual visits to museums, zoos, and even to the U.S. Capitol. But there was one issue. Many of their clients couldn't even get online.
7: Our big focus was to find those consumers that didn't have anything right then and there.
5: Active Reentry purchased 24 tablets to give to their clients, and they've connected about a half dozen to the Internet so far. The money came from the CARES Act, the next step, training folks on how to use their new tech. Here's Nita again.
3: We had a program to where we were on the tablet and they showed us how to go through everything too. But you know what? When your mind can't hold all this information, you've got to do it more than once.
5: And Chris and his team were there to guide her through the process.
3: And, and I think this is probably why I enjoy the tablet because if somebody didn't have patience with you, then you would not want to participate.
5: Chris was even there to help Nita get connected for our interview via Zoom.
7: And you just hit the blue, one; it'll say yes. So do you want to practice that really quick? I do. OK, so I will just go ahead and mute you.
5: And it's important for people with disabilities to remain connected to their peers, says Chris. Nita's a widow, and she lives alone.
3: If you're not connected to other people, then I says you can go into depression or or feel loneliness and such like that. So I says this is this is a good program to be on.
5: Arvin Hansen also just got on the internet for the very first time. He was born with a cognitive disability and he's been going to active reentry programs for the past twenty years, but they're not quite the same virtually.
2: This is better than nothing, per se, I guess, better than nothing. Because I'm kind of a social person, and that's what's been hard on the whole thing, is that. You can't interact with people like you should. I'm probably not the only one, probably not. Mainly, before all this happened, we used to get together, and that, that, that's the main part of the program. You, you meet friends for life.
5: Arvin and Chris first met 12 years ago when Chris first started working for Active Reentry.
2: In the very beginning, I started calling him CRISPR Columbus. That's the nickname.
5: Why, do you, why is that his nickname?
2: I know, it just, I know, it just came to me,
5: and it just stuck. Chris and Arvin have become close over the years, and it's like that for most of Chris's other clients, too.
7: We're their, we're their support system, and a lot of them, you know, we they, they probably view us as family, you know? They feel comfortable. We've had that connection with them for years.
5: Arvin's not sure if he'll keep using the internet after the pandemic is over. As for Nita, she's hooked. She loves the cooking classes that Active Reentry offers, and... That got her looking online for some new recipes.
3: I have started into this plant-based food. I was looking at soups and I was looking how to make rice. I says it was It was a lot of fun to thumb through it.
5: And she's even thinking about buying a smartphone to do video calls with her children and grandchildren. And if she does, Chris will be there to help her set it up. Technology doesn't have to mean something fancy or new, or even high-tech. Jordan Snell is interested in machines that we often take for granted. Well, until they're not working, that is. He's studying technology and engineering education at Utah State University. And he also has a side business.
2: So I fix lawnmowers, leaf blowers, weed eaters, snow blowers this time of year. I'm kind of an oxymoron. I have cerebral palsy. I have terrible dexterity, but I love nothing more than working with my hands and figuring out how things work and why they're not working. So but because of the pandemic, I only took did a few jobs this summer for established clients. It was quite the financial hit over the summer. So my wife also has cerebral palsy. She's actually a quadriplegic meaning she's in a power wheelchair. And that's the other reason I've had to be careful is because of her quadriplegia. She's at a much higher risk for complications if she did get COVID-19. Back when I was single and it was just me, I'd probably say whatever. If I get it, I get it. But... If she gets it it wouldn't be good.
5: That was Jordan Snell from Logan. Back in late March, a group of women in their seventies decided to take their knitting group online. It was a seamless transition. Well mostly. I
11: totally lost your invitation. It was like oh.
3: Well so here's a here's a little secret, Cheryl. This is what Zoom calls a recurring meeting. The number never changes. Now I can see everybody. There's Mariana. Hi, Mariana. Oh, Hello. you know
5: what? This is probably everybody who's coming. Good. This is Catherine Sharpstein. How did you become the uh, <laughs> the Zoom oh. organizer? <laughs> Hostess with the mostest. Her writing group had already moved online, and she realized that Zoom was really easy to use. And. It helped that she decided to invest in a premium Zoom account, with no limit on the length of meetings.
3: And then I just sent out an email and I said, hey, I'm hosting this week and I'm not going to clean my house, but, you know, come anyway.
11: (laughs) It's not quite the same, but you know the difference between canned music and live music. If you are in the room with the music, it enters your body in a different way.
5: This is Cheryl Hart, a retired singer and one of the group's longtime members. A small but significant difference about meeting virtually?
11: We have to bring our own snacks and eat them here, and we don't get to share them (laughs) because everybody is a really good cook and people bring really good, like honest, good, true snacks, not just
12: junk.
5: Karen Hamilton was the one who originally started the group about eight years ago after she retired from teaching.
12: I've always wanted to know how to knit. And I said, that is one of my goals when I retire. Um, I want to learn how to knit. And I thought the best way to do it is start a knitting group and then they can teach me.
5: Do you, do you view yourself as like the organizer here, the glue? Not at all.
12: <laughs> no, no, no. I, what I do is like, I'm one of those instigators. I get things started and then I pull back and just let it go.
5: And she really did just let it go. You don't even have to know how to knit to be part of the group. All handcrafts are welcome. Crocheting, embroidery. And when Katherine Sharpstein first joined the group, she wasn't crafting per se. She was using the time with the group to sort her husband's baseball card collection.
3: He had gone into the nursing home and that, those cards had to go somewhere.
5: Her husband had dementia and the group helped her through it as she watched him slip away. And then they supported her when he died about two years ago.
3: For me, talking is really, really makes a big difference. If something upsetting has happened to me, I want to talk about it. I think all of us at one time or another have sort of told our life story to the group. And that's really cathartic. And, you know, it, it really creates bonds.
5: The group is a support system for the women to navigate a new phase in their lives. Here's Cheryl again.
11: W- when you are younger, and you have a family to deal with and jobs, you don't, um, I, ha- I didn't have a, a, a cohesive female component to my life. I mean, I had friends and we did things with them, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't the, the continuity that I have with these people just wasn't there.
5: And the conversation is lively too. Cheryl often brings a quote for the group to discuss.
11: So William Seward says, There was always just enough virtue in this republic to save it. Sometimes none to
12: spare. (laughs) Yep. That's for sure. Isn't that amazing? When the pandemic started,
5: Catherine uh, Sharpstein knew knew that she needed to find a way for the conversation and the relationships to continue. They needed each other more than ever during the pandemic. The group now meets every week instead of every other. I
3: didn't realize how long this would go on, but I realized that there would be a psychological need for people to keep in touch.
5: The group's always been about more than helping each other troubleshoot their projects, but now it's even more so. Here's Karen again. I mean,
12: half, most of the time now, we don't even know what each other's working on. Sometimes we'll say, well, what are you working on? <laughs> and they'll hold it up. But typically it's more about good to see you
5: and good to see you, tends to morph into talk about COVID.
12: We're really scared of this. My husband and I are very, very afraid. And yeah, some some other people in the group are too because in the meeting group, because they have reason to, you know, most of us have compromising uh, medical stuff. So it's, it is a big deal.
5: Cheryl's husband, Steve, recently recovered from renal carcinoma. She has asthma. If she contracts the virus, She's worried that she'll die.
11: So I internalize the stress. Being able to meet with my friends on Zoom lessens that anxiety.
5: And right now, there's a lot to be anxious about.
11: So what can you do? You can despair. You can say, I can't control anything. This is horrible. I'm just going to sit in my chair. Never going to do anything. Or you can take care of the people immediately around you.
5: Thanks for listening. I'm Shoshana Bucksbaum. This has been a special about how people with disabilities and seniors have been using technology to stay connected during the pandemic. A special thanks to Chris Stoker and Amy Notwell at the Speakers as Advocates Network, Matt Wapit and Lynn Lyons at the Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University, Marla Neef, Program Coordinator for the Up to Three Programme, Terry Yelonik, Executive Director of Active Reentry, and Linda Edelman from the University of Utah. Music by Emily A. Sprague.
0: You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You just heard a special program, part of uh, UPR's ongoing series, Project Resilience, And uh, Project Resilience is made possible with support from the Utah State University Center for Persons with Disabilities. Following a break, we're going to bring back on the uh, host and reporter for this special, Shoshana Buxbaum. And later in the program, we'll be talking with Sachin Pavithran, who's executive director of the United States Access Board. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we just featured a special program, a part of uh, UPR's ongoing series, Project Resilience. Project Resilience is made possible with support from the Utah State University Center for Persons with Disabilities, and we bring back on now uh, the host and reporter for this special, Shoshana Buxbaum. Uh, Shoshana, uh, listening to that uh, your your special program again, what especially stands out to you?
1: Yeah, I think what stood out to me is sort of how easy it is to forget what other people are going through. Um, As you heard in that, um, the story with Katie Lynn um, and, you know, the whole point of the story was, you know, Zoom has become ubiquitous. We all use it for meetings to stay in touch with people. And, you know, we talked a lot about how, you know, you have to go through this extra step to sort of get captions. Um, for Zoom. And then of course, because I was doing so many interviews in Zoom, I like sent her the Zoom link. And the whole point of our thing was like Zoom isn't accessible for her. But even as we'd had these conversations, I had forgotten about it, you know. And so I decided to keep that in the piece because I think even, you know, as I was reporting this, I realized how many things that I don't really, you know, think about in that moment. Of course, Katie Lynn was so gracious, but You know, even though that was sort of the part of our conversation, I had, because I was so caught up in other stuff, it's so easy to sort of forget what other people are going through and making accessibility, you know, a priority.
0: We'll talk more about this, of course, when we bring on Sachin Pavithran. Uh, One thing that stood out to to me from your piece, Shoshana, was uh, this universal need to connect and and how that's made more difficult during pandemic times. And of course, technology can help. Uh, I was touched by, uh, I think her name was Nita in Price. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's a widow and and she says, uh, boy, she really needs to connect to people.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so um, fascinating to me because we think about like, oh, you know, it's, the pandemic has changed how we're li- a lot of us are living our lives, um, how we're connecting with people, and, you know, she was like, "I really need to connect." I'm used to going to these programs in person. What's so amazing was she actually connected to the internet for the first time. The pandemic provided this opportunity that she never thought she would get on the internet. You know, and so there's like the need for human connection, but also. She needed that human connection from the folks at Active Reentry that she knew really well and she trusted and that had the patience to sort of guide her, right? So it's this sort of like double human connection. You know, you rely on people. You know, it's not a matter of just getting the tech to stay connected, right? It's like you also have to rely on your community of people you trust and care about to sort of help you. And she now is going to keep using the Internet, even after the pandemic is done. You know, it sort of opened up this world for her, um, which I thought was just so powerful. You don't think about the pandemic as sort of opening up new avenues for communication. You know, we think about it as like constricting, kind of.
0: Yeah, that's certainly true. Well, we're talking with Shoshana Bucksbaum, who's the reporter and host for this special program, part of UPR's Project Resilience uh, Project. And we now we bring on uh, Sachin Pavitran. Uh, he just started a new role as executive director of the U.S. Access Board. That's an independent federal agency that develops accessibility standards and guidelines for people with disabilities. Before that, he spent two decades at the Center for Persons with Disabilities at Utah State University. And most recently, he was the center's policy director and head of Utah's assistive technology program. Uh, Sachin Pavithran, welcome to the program.
9: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: so it was, it was great to hear from you in this piece uh, from Shoshana. Uh, I wonder just what stands out to you, uh, I guess most of all, the, the lessons learned from, uh, from the pandemic with regard to uh, accessibility issues that you deal with.
9: You know, with how things have been functioning over the last uh, I don't know ten months or so since the pandemic started, uh, what what has changed is the sudden embrace embracing of how technology can bring people together, which was not the norm, because most people, especially whether it's employment or in other settings, always. Pushed for in-person, which has its own value, but there were barriers that people with disabilities always had to face because of transportation or other reasons that they couldn't participate for uh, community activities or you know neighborhood activities, employment, remote work, and all those. So those barriers are slowly being removed because of technology and accessibility is also being addressed because of uh, you know some of these uh, technology being put in place, you know, all the big tech companies like microsoft google uh you know zoom uh being a big player in some of this uh conversation has prioritized making accessibility a huge component and make removing various like Google's got. Their you know, closed captioning feature, Microsoft is also with their teams are trying to push a lot of these features. So all, all these companies are making it a high priority, and accessibility is definitely being addressed, even though it's not perfect, but it's significantly more than it was before
0: March of last year. So in this piece, you talked about transportation being a barrier, and, and in ways that I wouldn't have thought of, Uh, You talked in this piece about, uh, you know, if you're blind, what do you do before and after a meeting?
9: Yeah, so transportation is always one of the biggest barriers for people with disabilities when you're looking for employment or housing. You know, why do you choose to live where you live? Um, You know, for example, right now uh, I'm moving to uh, the Washington, D.C. area, and um, I'm looking for a place but I need to find a place that I can have access to a metro. Uh, That increases cost of living uh, so I can get to, uh, you know, where I need to go independently. But that's not a thought that a lot of people have to have because they can drive on their own. So being a blind person, that is something I have to consider. But with that also comes expense that I have to consider so I can get to my employment. Uh, People, people, uh, people with disabilities, when they look for employment, they if if they want to live further away, that is usually not possibility because transportation becomes a barrier. The further you go out from the urban uh, living, it's limited how much you have access to transportation. And when you get to your meetings, like I said in my um, uh, piece earlier. You have to plan accordingly, because if you're relying on public transportation, you have to figure out how can you get there so you're early enough for the meeting so you know you're not running up right against the meeting time but it it's there's just a lot of planning that goes on that a lot of people take for granted
0: and so uh, that's one of the advantages during pandemic times or is encouraging companies to do more uh, allow more remote work, which which I guess removes at least in part some of the transportation barriers.
9: Yeah, now it's 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 been interesting to watch how companies have embraced remote work. Even companies that was completely against uh, remote working, uh, you know, the mentality of what uh, you know remote work does and how you supervise in a remote work setting. All those uh, conversations have changed, and there's the sudden embrace of this is doable. We need to make this happen. Let's let's see what needs to be done so we can make it efficient for supervisors to supervise the employees, but also have productive uh, conversations within, you know, teams, um, within staff, and, you know, so that you're being productive within your work setting. You know, prior to the pandemic, that conversation was almost non-existent. You know, it was always... A special accommodation if if any now there are companies that were practicing t- remote working but it wasn't it was not as common as what we find in the last six seven months
0: you just joined us uh, we're talking with sachin pavitran uh he is um just recently uh sort a new role for the uh, as executive director of the u.s access board and we're also talking with Shoshana Buxbaum, who's the reporter and host for the special program we just heard, part of UPR's Project Resilience. Uh, Shoshana Bucksbaum, do you, do you have a question or two for, for Sachin? Maybe you did, didn't get to, to get in the special, but uh, we would like to emphasize here.
1: Yeah. Um, Sachin, what we had talked about a little bit, which got into the piece, but not fully, is that um, we talked a little bit about sort of, you know, there's these remote, Opportunities, But um, there's still sort of discrimination against people with disabilities, whether it be in terms of how they can effectively work in the workplace and how remote technology, you know, how do you see that helping or maybe, you know, are there still issues with that that aren't going to be solved by, you know, an increase in remote work?
9: Now, when it comes to discrimination for people with disabilities, for you know, you know, when they apply for jobs, it's hard to tell how that's going to change. Um, I'm hopeful it's going to have a significant uh, impact because of remote working. Because there are certain things that people assume people with disabilities can do. Employers assume people with disabilities can do. It could be as simple as you know how they going to get to a work setting, how are they going to uh, function in meetings, uh, things that shouldn't be of concern, but because of remote working, uh, I have a, you know, and this is just me being hopeful, that employers are going to be a little more lenient, partly because they don't see the disability, um, it's not in your face. And for some reason, the, the general population seems to be a little more comfortable. That's not how it should be, but that's how it seems like they they are going to adjust better because it's not in your face. Uh, you know, I wish it was the other way around, disability or not. They, they feel comfortable in including people with disabilities in any employment setting. But this might be a, a step towards... Employ, employers entertaining people with disabilities in the work setting, and then seeing and people with disabilities can be contributing members of uh, society and also can't function fully, just like someone without a disability, and changing the dialogue on how the barriers for people with disabilities should be removed and they you know hiring of people with the practice of hiring people with disabilities needs to be changed.
1: Yeah, um, Tom, I just have one more follow-up question um, for Sachin, if that's okay. Um, But yeah, as as I was reporting this story, I was really struck about how um, there's so many different, when we think of disability, maybe people think of like very specific, maybe physical disabilities, um, but it's a really broad term and disability encompasses so much and there's no sort of like beginning and ending line of what someone who's disabled and someone who's not. So what do you think needs to be done for people to sort of better understand the disability community and and how that works into providing accommodations and accessibility?
9: So, you know, when it comes to uh, disabilities, you know, you have the visible disabilities, you know, pe- people using a wheelchair, people, uh, you know, who have cerebral, cerebral palsy. So, Things that it's very obvious that someone has a disability. Then you have the hidden disabilities, when especially when it comes to mental health-related, uh, uh, or you know, someone who have, is hard of hearing. Now, even in a remote setting, you wouldn't know I'm blind because you're not interacting. You know, you wouldn't realize I'm using s- some special technology. So, it's hard for people to gauge all the. Different uh, types of disabilities and how people function, but it's also because people don't understand how the people with disabilities really function in a regular setting, whether it's in, you know in a home environment in a community environment or in a work environment. And if you're not exposed to it, it's hard for you know the people in the community to really understand why inclusive, um, you know, having some. Inclusive community, having a fully inclusive community is essential, and the only way we're going to get to a place where there's fully inclusive communities, whether it's you know for education or employment or just within your community that you live in, is people embracing what role people with disabilities can play, um, you know, within the setting that we're talking about, but. It, 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 it's not going to happen till people bring people with disabilities in a setting and make them part of the conversation that's happening and really including them in all the conversations that, as they are contributing members, not as someone they feel sorry or feel pity for. They feel like they have to do something nice.
0: Well, we've been talking with Sachin Pavitran. He is uh, the new executive uh, director of the U.S. Access Board. It's an independent federal agency that develops accessibility standards and guidelines for people with disabilities. Uh, Sachin Pavatran, thanks so much for joining us.
9: Thanks for having me.
0: And uh, we've had with us for the hour uh, Shoshana Buxbaum, a freelance journalist uh, based in New Jersey, a former intern for UPR and recent graduate from the New York, I should say Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY in New York City. Uh, Shoshana Buxbaum, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And thanks for your your excellent piece we are able to feature here today. Uh, this is part thank of uh, UPR's uh, Project Resilience, and uh, Project Resilience is made possible with support from the Utah State University Center for Persons with Disabilities. And we thank everyone for listening to Access Utah today.